The following message is from Bear Creek Church. More information about BCC is available at bearcreekchurch.org. Well, Acts 5 and verse 20 are the words of an angel telling imprisoned apostles, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. The words of this life are the words of our faith in Jesus. And because of Jesus, these apostles, they're threatened, they're imprisoned, they're then miraculously released. And instead of running for the hills, what do they do? They go right back to the temple grounds and tell everyone about the words of this life. God's words concerning eternal life in his son jesus acts is filled with gospel sermons and in verses 30 through 31 we looked at last week peter he sums up the gospel saying the god of our fathers raised jesus whom you killed by hanging him on a tree god exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to israel and forgiveness of sins And so last Sunday, we considered that, well, the gospel, it has to do with God raising up the leaders of old, who were types and shadows of the leader to come, that these prophets and kings spoke of God, raising the ultimate leader, the Prince of Peace, our Savior, Jesus. The gospel has to do with God's eternal plan. It has to do with Jesus' atoning death becoming a curse for us as they killed him on a tree. It has to do with the resurrection, which shows God's acceptance of this sacrifice. It has to do with his ascension, his exaltation as our ultimate leader and only Savior, a Savior who grants repentance and forgiveness of sins. This is how Peter sums up the gospel message. And when the angel tells them to speak all the words of this life, we have the impression that there's more, that there's a a context to all of these words, these words of this life. And we picture, what? We picture Jesus opening the scriptures showing his disciples how all of the Old Testament had to do with him. It's God's entire story, how he worked throughout history, choosing a people, making covenants with them, speaking his word through the prophets. And the book of Hebrews points out points this out, bring, uh, beginning with these words. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. The words of this life have to do with God speaking through these early fathers and prophets concerning his son. The words of this life, they they meet in the fullness of time when God sent forth his son, who is the creator, who is the glory of God, who is the source of life that upholds the universe by the word of his power. So all the words of this life cover a lot of territory. 
And all of it comes to this single point of Jesus. Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life. Today, our Advent theme is love. A great theme having to do with this life, Jesus. The reason that we celebrate Christmas has to do with one of the greatest verses of all. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Father, we are thankful for the truth of your word. Your revelation that tells us of the greatest love of all. Give us ears to hear. Give us a sense of awe as we consider the gift of your love to us. A gift that that never goes out of style, never shrinks or fades, but the only gift that truly satisfies us forever. And may your gift of love to us have an ongoing impact, giving us a, a joy that spreads to those around us and glorifies you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want you to consider a question. How does God feel about you? How does God feel about you? What's the first thing that comes to your mind? Is he disappointed? Angry? Trying really hard to be patient with you? Is your knee-jerk reaction to to think of yourself as an undeserving sinner, a worm? And it's true, we are undeserving of God's grace. But doesn't grace speak of God's unmerited favor towards us? And what is that favor? So again, how does God feel about you? I know it seems too good to be true. I know that we don't deserve it, but just stop. Just stop and take this in. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And when we read all the words of this life, we see that this is not this is not some impersonal general love for an unknown people. No, it's those he foreknew and predestined. It's those whom he called and justified and glorified. If you know Jesus, God so loved and gave his son for you. There's no more significant question than how does God feel about me? And nothing compares to the reality that God loved you so much that he gave his only son. Martin Luther called this verse the Bible in miniature. And if this is the Bible in miniature, then the words of this life will come back to the fact that God loves you. Yes, he he knows your sin. 
He knows that we're undeserving worms who have greatly offended him. And yes, God loved you to the point of sending his one and only beloved son. Here's another question. One that will be the essence of our study this morning. What kind of love is this? What kind of love is this? How do we describe God's love? Paul says that God's love is great. God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. God's love is a great love. And yet, even this tends to land flat because the word great is so overused, isn't it? It's kind of like the word awesome. If everything's awesome, then we're never in awe. If that movie was great, or that game, or that meal is great, how are you doing? Great. How are you? Great. Everybody's great. If everything's great, then nothing's really that great. But God's love is the epitome. God, it's the epitome of love. It's earnest. It's plentiful. It's, it's overflowing. It's great. We might love with good intentions, things we fail to bring about. But the great love of God accomplishes what he desires. Our love is often powerless, and we're left with a sense of longing. But God's love is great, bringing us from death to life, just like the resurrection of Jesus. The Greek word that Paul uses for great is used to describe an overflowing harvest or an intense emotion. There are many things that we call great, but God's love truly deserves to be called great. Okay, how else? How else would we describe the love of God? It's immeasurable. Paul prays that that believers will comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. In other words, Paul wants us to comprehend the fact that we can't comprehend the dimensions of God's love for us. If Jen asked me, Brian, how much do you love me? And I said something corny like, I love you to the moon and back. Well, technically, she could say, oh, really? Only 477,710 miles worth of love? So there's a limit to your love? Yes, sadly, there is a limit to our love. Our love can be measured, and sometimes it's not even willing to drive three miles to pick up some eggs at the store. But it's not possible to exhaust the love of God. One author wrote, The love of God is greater, far than tongue or pen can ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star and reaches to the lowest hell. Yes, God's love is great and immeasurable. And it's also a holy love. What does this mean? Well, you know, some years ago... I read a a devotional on the various attributes of God, 
And the author mentioned an attribute that I hadn't really heard of or thought of before at that time. It's the attribute of simplicity. Have you heard that? God being simple. Usually that's an offense if you call someone simple, but not with God. God's simplicity, which speaks of his perfection, his oneness, that in reality... We shouldn't even think of the attributes because he is, he is perfect in everything that he is. He's not divided by his attributes. There's a, there's a perfect harmony in the essence of his being. And I mention this because sometimes people make the mistake of comparing the attributes and they say silly things like, well, I prefer God's love to his holiness. No, God is perfect. And so his holiness is loving and his love is holy. God so loved the world that he gave his only son for a purpose. To redeem us from the curse of sin and to transform us. To make us holy into the likeness of Christ. His love is a holy and perfect love because... His love makes us holy. Our culture uses the idea of love, uh, romantic love in particular, and joins it with sin. But God cannot and will not do this because His love is joined to His holy purposes. His love leads us to holiness, and we're changed. We're changed. I heard a Christian counselor describe that when he um, counsels people who are considering to be married, he often hears the bride typically say something like, I never want to change him. All the people who are married are laughing. The counselor then describes that he pauses and he, leans forward and looks her in the eyes and says, you will. God's love never says, I don't want to change you. Because God's love is holy. And he intends to change us out of love so that we might be the holy people that he always meant us to be. God's love is almighty. Because he is almighty. And this is, this is good news because it means God is able to do all that his love desires for us. When we rightly love people, we want the best for them, don't we? And this involves change. It involves growth. And we can help people to a point... But our love is not almighty. God's desire for us is perfect and he's able to bring it about. J.I. Packer said that God's love has at its heart an almighty purpose to bless which cannot be thwarted. Nothing, nothing and no one can thwart God's love for his people, neither death nor life. Angels nor rulers, nothing present, nothing to come. No power, 
no height or depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Why? Because God is almighty. And he loves us with an almighty love. Do you know the love of God? It's great. It's immeasurable. It's holy. It's almighty. And I love that it's also unchanging. It's unchanging because of who God is. God is immutable. Unchangeable. And so his love for us is unchanging. John Owen writes, Though we change every day, yet his love does not change. If anything in us or on our part could stop God loving us, then he would long ago have turned away from us. It's because his love is fixed and unchangeable that the Father shows us infinite patience and forbearance. If his love was not unchangeable, we would perish. And likewise, since God is eternal, so is his love. God declares, I have loved you with an everlasting love. For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you. When Romans 8 says that those whom God foreknew, he also predestined. This is describing the eternal love of God for you. Before the foundations of the earth, God is eternal, no beginning. Before the foundations of the earth, from eternity past, God predestined you. He chose to love you. And what many people miss in this Romans 8 passage is the beauty of this word for new. Some only misunderstand it to mean that God knew you existed. And of course he did. Why state the obvious? But this is not what the word means here. Biblically speaking, when a man knows his wife, when when it says that Adam knew his wife Eve, we understand it's not merely saying that he was aware of her and knew she existed and now it pops a baby. No, we, we understand to know her is to love her. It's a biblical phrase for sex, for, for intimacy. And so when Paul writes, for those whom God knew, those whom God foreknew, he also predestined. He's not simply saying that God knew you existed. What this says is that in eternity past, God loved you. You. With, a, with an intimate kind of love that would make you his bride. Leading all the way to glory. Changing you. Glorifying saving related to this is God's sovereignty and so his love is a sovereign love 
In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. Why? According to the purpose of his will. According to the purpose of his sovereign will, to the praise of his glorious grace. God accomplishes his sovereign will in loving you. The psalmist says, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. He is sovereign. James Boyce writes, God's love is a sovereign love. His love is uninfluenced by anything in the creature. And if that is so, it is the same as saying that the cause of God's love lies only in himself. In scripture, no cause for God's love other than his electing will is ever given. And this is God's explanation for his love to the Israelites in the Exodus. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because, why? It's because the Lord loves you. Sovereignly within himself. Mysterious. Hard for us to comprehend. It may be impossible for us to comprehend. But this is God's word. What a love. God so loved the world that he gave. So God's love is a giving love. It's an agape kind of love. Not a love that, that responds to a friendship. Not something based on a gift received and how something or someone makes you feel. But agape, a love that's based on giving. And in John 3.16, we see that God, the Father's love for us, gave the most precious, most valuable, most intimate gift of all in his Son. And we can imagine the intensity in this, can't we? We as people, relational parents, we can understand the intensity of this because it's put in this term of parent and child. It's what people long for. It's what causes moms to stay up late, rocking their babies to sleep, sitting by their bedsides when they're sick, feeding and caring for them, doing all these things to the point of utter exhaustion. Right, moms? It's what causes dads to assemble bikes and toys and set up Christmas lights. And to run around and play games that they wouldn't ordinarily play. It's the kind of love that takes an extra job to provide for their needs. It's a relationship like no other. The love of a parent for their child. Right? You know this. The the love of a parent for a child, or the longing to have a child, or the grief in losing a child. There's nothing like it, right? So we get it. We get it when it's put in terms of a father giving his only beloved son. Why? Knowing that this giving is going to result in his suffering and death. 
And I don't say this as if thinking of our roles as if our heartache is worse. As if our experience is more intense and that the Father's giving is merely something like, in a lesser way, what we know, what we feel. No, we are the ones corrupted by sin. And so ours, our experience is, it's a taste, it's just a small taste of an infinitely greater love and heart that the Father has for His Son. So whatever that emotion that comes in your heart and mind at the thought of your children, it's just a small taste of the reality of the Father for His own Son, His only beloved Son. Through our experience, God gives us this small taste of this loving relationship. And this is why John says, God so loved, so loved. Jesus basked in the love of his Father. And God speaks of his love for his Son. So in giving his Son, his only Son, God is giving his heart to us. John John Flavel asks, Who would part with a son for the sake of his dearest friends? But God gave him to and delivered him for enemies. Oh, love unspeakable. There's no expression of love that compares to this. And doesn't this understanding of the Father's great love, doesn't this correct a terrible view that people have toward him, toward God the Father, that the Father's some mean, grumpy God of the Old Testament? Or do you ever think that God only loves you because Jesus settled him down and kept him from smiting you like you deserve? That the Father's love is is reluctant or half-hearted and only comes as a result of what Jesus has done? Is this what you think? That God loves you because of what Jesus has done? It sounds halfway right, doesn't it? But God's love for you is not a response. It's not a reaction. No, it's a giving love, an initiating love. And John 3.16 tells us so. It doesn't say that God so loved the world because of Jesus. It says God so loved the world that he gave. God does not love us because Christ died for us. No, Christ came into the world because the Father's great love for us. God loved this evil world, not after, but before the Savior came to bring us to God. God's love is the reason we can be forgiven. The reason that we're born again. The reason that we inherit eternal life. What does it mean that God gave his only son? It means that the Father sent the eternal and glorious Son into this world to be born in the likeness 
or with the stuff of men. The immortal one took on a mortal nature with all of its weaknesses, all of the sufferings that go along with this. So again, put this into your situation. Would you do anything close to this for your dearest friend, let alone your enemy? And it's not because God is indifferent towards his son. No, his love is greater than ours. It's perfect. It's holy. God sent him for this. And in John's gospel, 39 times Jesus says that the Father sent him into the world for this mission of salvation. When we read that God gave his only son, we should think of the purpose for which he was sent. And so we celebrate Christmas. We celebrate his birth When we do so, we should think of the cross where Jesus suffered and died so that we might be forgiven. This giving love of the Father, it has our redemption in mind. Requiring the torturous death of His only Son, even His own wrath being poured out on Him. God knew this. God knew this. This is what He was willing to To give for you and me. Jeremiah Burroughs writes, Behold the infinite love of God to mankind and the love of Jesus Christ, that rather than God see the children of men to perish eternally, He would send His Son to take our nature upon Him and thus suffer such dreadful things. Herein, God shows his love. It pleased the Father to break his Son and to pour out his blood. Here is the love of God and of Jesus Christ. Oh, what a powerful, mighty, drawing, efficacious meditation this should be for us. It deserves a response, doesn't it? So let me close with a few ideas, a few applications. What this tells us is that God views the human soul as something very precious. That he would give so much to save our souls means that that we should likewise value the souls of those around us. Again, as the book of Acts tells us, we as the church exist as witnesses to Christ and his gospel, we need, to, we need to wake up and pray and share the love of Christ and not be afraid of people's reactions to us. We need to value the, the souls of those whom God has given us in our children and grandchildren, not neglecting to show them, the, not taking it for granted. Show them the faith. Point out that Jesus is the greatest hero of all. Teach them to to sing. You sing. Be an example. Teach them his word. Involve them. Excite them about Christ's church. If we're communicating boredom or that our faith is a lower priority than sports and traveling and fun, then we're failing to value the soul's that God has given to us. 
these precious souls. Second, in light of God's personal and and incomparable gift to us, we should be very confident, shouldn't we? We should be confident in in the rest of this life that he's given to us. We should be confident that he's going to help us and give us the grace that we need in every circumstance, in every need, in all, in all things, seeing us all the way home. So instead of anxiety, instead of depression, we should, we should have peace in this life. And I know it's not that simple. There are troubles, there are concerns, but what kind of advantage do we really have in knowing that nothing can keep us from the love of God in Christ Jesus? Nothing. If it's true, and it is true, that for those who love God, He is sovereignly working all things, every circumstance, for your eternal good, knowing that that good doesn't mean comfort and safety and us getting our way. But that God in his infinite wisdom defines and gives us what is truly good for us. Remember his purposes in making you holy. What kind of confidence and peace should be ours? Yes, we're going to be anxious and disturbed, but we come back to this. You preach this to yourself. If God would give us such a gift as his own son, isn't he worthy of our trust? Hasn't he proven his love through this gift to us? Here's how Paul reasoned. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also... With him graciously give us all things. Impossible for him not to. God knows better than we know. He knows what we need. And he promises to not keep it from us. So shouldn't we be confident in him? Shouldn't we trust him with a sense of peace? Shouldn't we go to him in prayer? knowing that he's going to provide, knowing that he's good. A third application is for us to realize that God wants us to receive and embrace his love for us. Don't doubt him. Don't question his love for you in the midst of hardship. Don't diminish what he's given This kind of love deserves, it demands that we receive it in faith. And John 3.16's message to us is that God calls us to believe on Jesus Christ. To receive the Father's gift of love through personal faith in Jesus. If we believe, he promises us eternal life. And the warning that follows that if we harden our hearts to this great love gift of God means that we perish Jesus died to pay the penalty of our sins. And if we reject him, then certainly this is the worst sin of all. And the writer of Hebrews is right in warning us, how shall we escape? How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? 
Lastly, for those who do believe in Jesus, those who have been born again, those who have eternal life, shouldn't this, shouldn't your faith be the most important part of who you are and how you live? If we ignore his commands, what does it say about this gift? If we're unforgiving toward others, if we're stuck in bitterness and conflict, what does this say about the Father's gift of love? In light of his love to us, how can we not love in return? Loving God with obedient lives and loving each other because because he first loved us. Let's remember, let's remember, especially now, God's gift of love each and every day, but now especially in considering the birth of Jesus, our Savior. It's a gift that should change us. It's a gift that should change us. It should impact us for the rest, for the rest of our lives. Let's pray. Oh, what kind of love has been given to us, Father. That you, the God of all glory, that you would call us your children. Father, help us not to take this glorious truth for granted. And we confess that we do. But may this Christmas season continually ring of John 3.16 that you, Father, so loved the world that you gave the most precious, most valuable gift of all, your only son. May we celebrate what the angels sang, glory, the glory of our newborn king, the one who loves us like no other. So help us, Lord, to, to live, to celebrate in light of your great love for us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.